Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome to Unscrewed, the show that knows that real liberation includes sexual liberation. I am your host, Jacqueline Friedman. And this week, I'm really excited. Sometimes we have episodes based on requests from listeners, but this time it's a recommendation from a previous guest. Those of you who listened to This Is Why We're Bad at Sex uh, earlier this season, uh, which was the episode about Tumblr and bans on online content and SESTA-FOSTA and all of that stuff, remember that when I asked Kate Diadamo in the lightning round, who she thought was doing a great job unscrewing the sexual culture, she mentioned a book called The Color of Kink, uh, which is all about race and kink and pornography. And I was like, what is that? I need to get my hands on it right now. And so I immediately looked it up and found its charming author, Ariane Cruz, I should say Professor Ariane Cruz, who's an associate professor of women's and gender studies at Penn State and the author of this fantastic book. And she agreed to come and talk to me all about it. So here we are. Welcome to the show, Ariane. Thank you. Thank you for having me. As you know, we start on Unscrewed with the lightning round. So my first question to you is, what has been making you happy this week? I'd say probably just the warmer weather and getting back outside and more daylight because of daylight saving time. I have such mixed feelings about daylight savings time. But yes, the weather is definitely and the sunshine is definitely helping, isn't it? All right. What is the best sex advice you ever received? I think the best advice I received probably came a little later and it was get to know your own body and your own desires and your own pleasures. Yes. Excellent. I like to say the most important sexual relationship you'll ever have is the one you have with yourself. I think so. Certainly the most enduring, probably. Yes. Yes, exactly. All right. Uh, What's been making you maddest or saddest about the sexual culture lately? Uh, You know, R. Kelly. (laughs) The R. Kelly stuff has been pissing me off. I just find him to be such like a master manipulator and his recent kind of like Kavanaugh-like performances in the press. Oh my God. Um, Yes. It was so Kavanaugh-like. Unbelievable. Fucking textbook. um, But I think how long it's taken us to get to the point of charges of aggregated sexual assault against him and how many people, celebrities in particular, continue to support him, work with him despite his longtime history as such a predator in popular music. And how many Black women coming forward it took to actually get listened to. Exactly. And yes. then also, I think, unfortunately, it actually took, I think, a lot of white reporters 
to have these black women get listened to, right? Yeah. Not voices of the black women themselves, which is a very familiar thing. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. All right. Next question is, what's the biggest myth about sex that you used to believe but don't believe anymore? Probably that sex is only one thing or this sort of narrow idea of what counts as sex, which is something I talk to my students about a lot. So this idea that, you know, incredibly heteronormative idea of sex equals somebody putting their penis <laughs> into someone's vagina. And these are both biological organs, right? So how do we think more about what counts as sex beyond that very narrow idea? Yeah, absolutely. And lastly, the question that actually led me to you, who's someone who you think is doing really brave work unscrewing the sexual culture in some way that you want to give a shout out to? Yeah. I would say there is a couple who run a podcast called Black People Kink. Their names are Dominus Blue and Jamina or Baby J. And they discuss a wide range of issues kind of at the intersections of race and kink, but they talk a lot about polyamory and different types of sexuality, primarily for people of color or black people or what they call melanated folk. And I think they're doing really, really, really important, interesting work. I'm going to have to add that to my list, to my podcast, my podcast stream. Amazing. I'm always hungry for a great new podcast. And I also have, I listen to too many current events podcasts, mm -hmm. like, let's just like news analysis. And you know, a little of that is good, but I've actually been really wanting to like diversify my stream. So awesome. Thanks for the recommendation. All right. That was the lightning round. You did great. So let's talk about the color of kink. The first question I have for you is, and I like to ask a lot of people kind of their origin stories is like, how did you wind up studying and teaching and writing about this? It's not the most standard academic path. Well, I actually started studying and writing about just pornography in general, um, not necessarily BDSM pornography or Black women's performances in BDSM. And I always joke, I continue to make this joke, even though it's kind of bad and it's kind of not really a joke, that I was interested in pornography because I grew up in a household with two older brothers. And so there was always porn in the house. I think it's kind of true, but when I started this work in grad school, there wasn't anybody doing work on pornography or that work wasn't entirely visible. There were people working on it, but there was all this work on like the hypersexualization of black women in different media, whether it's fine art, whether it's music, uh, music performance, media, et cetera. And so I was kind of wondering like, why aren't we looking at these arenas of popular culture wherein like hypersexuality is kind of the norm. And I was also interested in like the, dichotomies of high and low culture and the politics of respectability and all these other things and citational politics and academia that maybe like kept us away from studying certain types of topics like pornography. So that's kind of where I threw my attention. I just And also, I think I've always been interested in pornography because it's so prolific, right? Just oh my like God, the, yeah. The amount of it, like you cannot keep up with it. Um, and I think that at the same time, it's not very creative. It is very creative. And then I started getting into BDSM representations because also noticing that the way that we were thinking about particular feminist scholars, thinking about the question of violence and pornography to me was too narrow. So one of the things that I think my book does is to complicate how the question of violence is traditionally framed in pornography in a kind of androcentric, heteronormative and narrow way. So as a result of really important feminist work, we kind of tend to think about violence as totally bad, as harmful, as unproductive. But I'm interested in how violence and aggression can be pictured as sources of pleasure and possibility for Black women, and how Black women can be like active agents rather than necessarily always passive victims. Yes. So let's get into that. 
let's start maybe in a, a sort of like foundational question for listeners who haven't thought that much about it. What BDSM experiences and what experiences with porn are specific to the experience of Black women? Like what what's specific at the intersection of BDSM, porn, and Black women? Hmm, that's a hard question because I don't necessarily think that there we can actually say that there are experiences, BDSM experiences specifically, that are specific to the experience of Black women as much as, let's say, like BDSM experiences that resonate with Black women in particular ways because of Black female sexuality. All right. And more specifically because of the historical legacies of Black female sexual violence. I'm totally open to you asking yourself a better version of my question. <laughs> no, no, no. It's a good question. It's a really good question. I, I just think that really what we need to do is take into consideration the historical legacies of sexual violence that continue to affect Black female sexuality. And so a lot of the book, for example, I'm interested in what I call unspeakable pleasures, which are taboo pleasures. I guess we could call them illicit pleasures. But they're also desired scenarios, nevertheless, for Black women. Like what? Um, and so I think like um, race play, which is one of the things I think we'll probably talk about, and how Black women explicitly use race and racism as an erotic tool, sometimes as a beyond tool of pleasure, a, a tool of power, etc. Well, let's talk about that now. Look, I'll be honest. I don't know that much about race play. It's, it's a loaded conversation, right? Yes. And so for me... The way I think about it, the way I sort of connect to it on an emotional and also sort of ideological level is my understanding as a survivor of rape fantasies and, and play around that, which I'm sure the rape fantasies are involved in rape, race play sometimes as well. Is it a similar kind of dynamic about sort of like encountering the sort of fear and violence in a, in a safer context and recontextualizing it? Exactly. There is actually, I make some parallels to rape play and race play in the book. Although I do want to be clear that I think that while we can make parallels in respect to some ideas, I think it's kind of problematic to compare like the modern day traumas of women survivors of sexual assault with the sexual trauma of chattel slavery. Oh, 100%. Um, but, yes. Yeah. But there is this similarity around giving women an opportunity to rescript and sort of renegotiate sexual memories of sexual trauma and experiences and to kind of like rewrite various acts. So I think it's actually a very valuable parallel at the same time it can be kind of problematic. And where, can you, can you expand also on the problems? I mean, I sort of cut you off there. On the problems of the parallel? Of the parallel and also, you know, sort of like the pitfalls of race play also. I know that, look, I know that there are people who are critical of it. I guess I'll just say that. I don't want to articulate their criticisms because I don't necessarily share them. But I'm sure that you've encountered them. And I wonder if you can sort of unpack that a little. Of course. So I think that race play is still an extremely controversial practice, even within BDSM, right, which is itself a kind of an already or always already controversial practice. So one of the things I was actually struck by in my research was that people who were really experienced professionally and personally with BDSM and all sorts of different aspects of BDSM play were kind of iffy about race play um, and that many people veer away from it because of the ways in which they find that sort of like race and racism compound, I guess maybe what I'd think of as sort of like the dangers, potential dangers and pitfalls of BDSM play. Um, or that it was sort of out there, right, and even in a kink space. And to me, this is really interesting, given what I would call the strange or natural or quotidian na 
easy nature of racism, right? So on the one hand, I think that racism is something that comes very naturally to many people. <laughs> um, so I was sort of like surprised that the one hand that race play would be something that people wouldn't be able to do. So there's that kind of like tension between like ease and, and difficulty with race play. Do you find that that comes up mostly for white people? Yeah. So there is a lot of white people that I've talked to that don't want to do it because of the ways in which they feel potentially a certain type of white guilt or that they themselves will feel like racists or look like racists or be branded as racist because of race play. Again, I think that we think about this sort of like fantasy reality divide, which is so critical in BDSM, right? Race play is, according to many people that do it, a fantasy practice, but there's this something about racism, I think, that challenges that for many people. And many people have a hard time detaching like the fantasy of racism from the kind of like real world everyday practice of racism um, and are worried that if indeed they practice race play, they could be racist or regarded as racist. I mean, I feel like it is related to how for a certain not small subsection of white people, it feels like being called a racist it feels like equally bad to what racism is right you know (laughs) what I mean like being called a racist is the real racism (laughs) but that it's so I don't even want to say charged but like it's 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 become this sort of like how very dare you like it's very third railing to sort of say somebody is a racist right now Mm -hmm. (laughs) despite like open racist (laughs) comments right I'm thinking about you know who like right and we have to say racially point. tinged or like <laughs> what the fuck ever right exactly because the word racist is so itself is so sort of taboo mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm just wondering if that sort of plays into it yeah I mean I think even within the practice of race play there are sort of obviously limits about what type of scenes and scenarios can be used so for example I was actually just talking to black lifestyle couple and they were explaining that the woman is a black submissive and the man is the dominant in the relationship and there's a 24 seven uh dominant submissive relationship and the woman was explaining to me that she had always been really uncomfortable with the term slavery or the terms master slave which are often used in bdsm because of the ways in which they resonate the history of transatlantic slavery particularly for her as a black woman while the man could actually disassociate interestingly and, and thought about the ways in which the term master and slave in kink or in BDSM are very different than outside of BDSM. And so there's a lot of different personal uh, nuances that also come into effect. So I'm also very reluctant to make grand assumptions about what race play means for various people when it's so personal. Yeah. And also can change for various people with different partners at different times and different spaces. Do you have any advice for listeners who maybe have wanted to explore race play but are new to it or have been afraid to bring it up with a partner or, you know, those sorts of things? God, I'm so I'm so reluctant to give anyone sexual advice. That's fine. Uh, in some ways, right? Because I'm like, am I am I having, you know, am I qualified? Um, <laughs> but I think my advice would be kind of general and in it to a certain extent it would be what I would advise anyone trying to get into BDSM, but Things like choosing a partner or the importance of choosing a partner. So having things like trust, attraction, desire, but also maybe thinking about partnering with somebody who has experience if you're inexperienced. Establishing limits, which is really important, I think. So determining what you do not want to do. Sometimes people have hard limits and soft limits. And here I'm actually always really inspired by um, Kristen Taramino. Oh, Tristan Taramino. Yes. 
We Sorry, actually went to school together. I've, I've known her for forever. Yeah. Oh, okay. So she has, um, in her writings about feminist pornography, Tristan has a no list and a yes list, meaning that she asks um, their performers, like, what's on their no list or who's on their no list, things they won't do or people they won't do, but also a yes list. And I just always find this so awesome, right? Because it's just this idea of, like, having an idea of what you want to do before you start doing something. Yes. With something, right? So, for example, with race plays, some people are uncomfortable using particular racial epithets. Other people are not. So I think discussing your limits is really important. I also think that in discussing our limits, we often discuss our possibilities. And for me, that's really important because I always think about like how BDSM can potentially enlarge like our sexual possibilities. But the last thing I would think of that's pretty important with BDSM, I think specifically race play is aftercare. Mm. which I think is always important, but especially important given BDSM play that really pushes like bodily and psychological limits or when we're trying new things. Right. Um, and of course, aftercare looks different for everyone, but to me, it's another form of communication. It can be anything from like healing physical wounds to taking a moment to kind of like relish the experience thinking about ways that you can support your partner after the scene ends. And here is actually another thing where I'm just like, God, we have so much to learn from BDSM, I think, instead of demonizing it and stigmatizing yes. it. Like, what would it mean if we had aftercare in our like everyday sexual experiences instead of like getting out off the bed or having the proverbial like post-coitus cigarette or getting on our smartphones? Like, what would it mean if we actually like talked to our partner or partners um, about what transpired, what we liked, what we didn't like, what we might want to do next time, what we never want to do again, and what we need. Like, I just think that's, it's a radical concept in some ways, but it's not. Yeah. I want to talk about porn specifically a little bit, if that's okay. I feel like it's really hard sometimes to know the difference between porn, which is degrading on a race or gender or other level and porn which is depicting consensual subjugation right like a, a dom sub dynamic and i i wonder if you can reflect on that sort of thinking about black women depicted in porn and what signifiers you look for to know whether like this is a healthy and exciting and responsible and great depiction of a black woman who being submissive versus and possibly engaging in race play or, you know, humiliation play or those sorts of things versus stuff that is racist, right? And damaging. Yeah, I think that's so hard because I think that particularly for mainstream audiences, there's unfortunately not a difference between a submission or degradation because of the ways that we equate the two. Yeah. When they are not necessarily equated within the realm of BDSM. And also because when we think more historically about the feminist porn critique of pornography and like the anti-porn movement, pornography was viewed as inherently degrading and violent, right? right? And still viewed as that way by many anti-porn feminists, right? Because it- And they specifically point to scenes in which women are in in sub positions. Mm -hmm. Yep. And also scenes that when women are sort of experiencing some type of violence or aggression. Mm -hmm. So I think actually with porn though, it's hard because we don't typically get- an affirmative consent on camera, right? So we don't see that. Um, well, and, and even if you do, I mean, there are some that sort of frame it before and after, but like, <laughs> you don't know that that performer isn't being coerced into making that little video saying they consented. Exactly, like, right? there's so and many layers of it. Yeah. For money, right? So it's yeah. like porn profit. So it's everything's so blurred and murky. But when you just asked that question, I was I thinking more about feminist pornography 
a lot of queer feminist pornography and the ways in which, how you just said, like there are interviews sometimes with the performers that are before and after. And I really appreciate those sometimes because of the ways in which to me, it sort of lets us know that this work is ostensibly consensual, right? Obviously we don't really know, right? It's a performance, it's a performance for profit. But to me, those are really helpful in thinking about the performer's desires, their limits, all these type of things that we don't often see in mainstream pornography. And kind of locating them as performers also, Mm -hmm. I think it it helps to sort of say this was a perform, you know, just sort of to remind us of that. Exactly, exactly. So I, I appreciate that. And also, I really like the kind of contrast between the like, I mean, I wouldn't call it an aftercare interview, but that's sort of what it is. And the scene itself, I just find it really interesting to see what the performers look like when they're finished, you know? Yeah. What's happening and what they're what they're going to talk about. Sort of like a behind the scenes view, I think, which I think is really interesting. But also that might be my own and a lot of other viewers desire for sort of like authenticity, right? That we find in so many different arenas of consuming visual culture. It's true. And authenticity, I think, is its own trap. Totally. It's, it's, it's a total trap. And I think it's especially a trap in representation and in pornography around the black body, because there's a lot still that has to do with like what type of body is sort of authentically black, what type of sexual scenarios are authentically black. And actually going back to this idea of race play, I think that there's this idea that black people who perform race play, not only are they sort of like not good black people thinking about the kind of politics of respectability, but oftentimes they're not authentically black or they're a traitor to the race. So how could you, as like an upstanding black person, want to engage in such types of like racial objection willingly? Yeah. And that must be so alienating. Yeah. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Can you talk maybe about some examples of porn featuring Black women that you love and why? You know, what's funny is I, I, I'm not watching that much porn anymore. Um, so I feel like the porn that I'm probably going to cite here is is not current. Um, oh, my God. I'm not watching I'm, A, I'm not going to know. And B, <laughs> and B, I feel like, you know, like, so what? Like, 
it's still good, right? Like, yeah, no, it is still good. And actually, I like a lot of classic pornography from the 1970s, even though I would say that, you know, it's not anywhere near what we could think of as feminist pornography. But I like it because of the ways in which we have these like feature length films with the original musical score and more of a plot. Um, and so for me, they're like events to watch and they're sort of like more fun. And you might watch them with a group of people and you might eat popcorn and talk about it and laugh rather than the like meat shots that we see on tube sites now, which most people are consuming. Um, so I like that kind of stuff, even though, of course, there are really problematic racial stereotypes of, as you can imagine, in work in the 1970s and uh, even early 1980s. But more recently, I'd say there's two people's work I like, and one of them is not doing porn so much anymore, but she does run a, a sex shop. Her name is Netta Joyner. Oh, she has the shop in Oakland. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fieldmore 510. And she's just a really great person, but she's produced, uh, I think, two or three really, really great films that represent... I think a lot of diversity in terms of bodies. So black women outside of a cisgender paradigm, stuff that uses sex toys in really creative ways, I think, of course, uh, because she's maybe not, of course, but she also sells them at the store. Right. <laughs> um, and then another person who is very well cited um, in the topic or arena of feminist pornography is Shine Louise Houston, who's out of the San Francisco Bay Area as well. Yeah, we've um, had her on the show. Oh, you have? Okay. Yeah. So you know all about her work. Um and but my listeners may not, not, you know, they're not all completists. So definitely. yeah, and always just doing really creative work and also really prolific with the Crash Pad series, which continues to be really interesting series in which two couples are in a room and they sort of like meet there and have sex and we watch them in a sort of voyeuristic way. So I like the way in which she's like using voyeurism, but also changing the traditional gaze of pornography, right, from like a heterosexual white male gaze to something very, very different. Yeah. It's easy to find discourse about how BDSM and porn has historically sort of oppressed and reinscribed the oppression of women and especially black women. But I think there's just not enough discourse. One of the reasons I is there's just not enough examples, I think, in people's minds about the ways that black women have used BDSM and porn to seek pleasure and power, which is what your book is about. So maybe outside of porn also, like, can you talk about like the history of black women finding liberation through through kink and sort of how that's maybe changed into the present day? Yeah, well, I think I just would probably want to back up and talk a little bit about how black women have viewed or approached BDSM, because it's been a very polarized debate, one that has not necessarily recognized black women finding liberation or voicing liberation, but rather one that has recognized black women's participation in BDSM as very problematic, right? Because of the legacies of sexual violence that we've already discussed. So one of the things I aim to do in the book is to kind of like uh, reinstate black women and black women's voices into the conversation of BDSM, specifically the feminist debate over BDSM that we can see here in the United States and the kind of what was called the sex wars in the 70s and 80s. And during that time, we of course have like an active debate regarding all sorts of things, porn, BDSM, lesbian sexuality, asking the questions of like, are these media inherently violent, dangerous, heterosexual, patriarchal institutions, or do they have the potential to be feminists? And can we as feminists engage in them and receive pleasure from them? So in the book, I kind of like, I don't know if I would call it an archaeology, but I, I excavate Black women's voices from this time. So, and these are really important women 
that I look up to black feminists who think very differently than I do about pornography and BDSM. And for me, that's always been a kind of a really interesting contradiction or chasm, right? To identify as a black feminist and to kind of have these like people that you admire so much as writers, but to differ so drastically on matters of sexuality. So for example, we have people like Alice Walker who writes about how BDSM is really like derides the history of chattel slavery or Audre Lorde talking similarly about how it perpetuates societal patterns of domination and submission. But then we have another side, right, where people are talking about it as a possibility for pleasure and saying that really pleasure is what matters. So I think that these conversations have existed for some time and they're continuing. But wait, sorry, let me back up. You you talked about healing, right? That was the other part of your yeah. question. Healing and power, which are two different yeah, things, but so, one I think leads us to the other sometimes. Yeah. So I think there is literature, right, that suggests that BDSM can be healing for people who have experienced various traumas. And we already talked today about rape play, which I do think is a really good example. And it sort of maybe enables people to like, as I said, re-script their sexual trauma or make these kind of like bodily or psychic shifts that experience feelings of empowerment. I think we see the same thing with race, as I said, but in a different way, where we see Black women enacting racialized scenes of aggression and objection and describing them as being not only pleasurable, but scenes from which they actually experience power, even if they were cast as submissives, right? And I think this is really hard for people to understand. Like, how mm. could you experience a feeling of pleasure when you're being degraded and called a uh, you know, the N word. Right. It's easier to see like a role reversal scenario, right? Exactly. You know, every once in a while, a story will go around about like a black dom who's like making her white, the male clients like read Audre Lorde or like, yes, you know, yes, and I, I, and I article. fucking yeah. love those stories, but I think that it's easier to digest than, than the we reverse. We understand that, right? yeah. but we can't really understand how the opposite works. And I think that that's something that I really wanted to try to explain in Black women's words as much as possible, because I think it's something that we continue to sort of like pathologize, like, how could this be? You know, like, we don't get it. Um, and we don't get it. I think oftentimes in the realm of sexuality, we uh, pathologize it. Yes. Yeah. But power to me is so interesting, because I think that like part of the reason why I guess I continue to be so drawn analytically to BDSM is because of how it enables us to think about or to rethink power. So a lot of it is like helping us to think about power from the bottom uh, or power in submission, which is something that of course Foucault writes about, right? this idea that power comes from the bottom up, not just top down, or that power can be productive and not just repressive, or that we don't necessarily possess power, like it's not a part of our bodies, an inherent part of our bodies, but we exercise it so it can be more fluid mm. and volatile and change. Um, and I think that we see this in BDSM and we see black women and many other black men too um, expressing feelings of power when they are actually in experiences or situations of racialized submission. One other thing though that I do think that's complicated with respect to power and I write about this in my book, but I think we need to do more actually to like, I don't know if resolve it, but just think about it more is like a lot of black women describe the affect of power or the feeling of power. And I want to have us think more. And I'm not sure there's an answer for this about like what it means to feel power, like a powerful person versus empowerment. Right. And is there a difference between the sort of affect or feeling of power versus an actual empowerment or something that leads to a kind of change? 
like a right so if i feel i think about those words differently i tend to think about empowerment as like instilling in someone a feeling of power versus actually having social power which is much harder yeah and and is there a relationship if i have experiences where i experience the feeling of power am i more likely to be able to stand up for and seek my own power in a socio-cultural context or is it a panacea right like well I feel power so everything must be okay exactly and I'm not sure but I think I don't want to dismiss the feelings of power either way sometimes they're short-lived and within the context of BDSM don't necessarily extend beyond like the finishing of a particular scene and so we have to just like think about that but yeah that I like your your idea of like is it a panacea you know I write about this in my last book uh which is called unscrewed I call it faux powerment powerment. yes I love that concept because I just think about like so my students I always ask them about like who do they think is a feminist and more recently and I I wasn't teaching this semester but this was last spring they were talking about Cardi B and I kind of have this like instinct to roll my eyes like as if or like the same thing when people talk about which one of the Jenners Kylie Jenner or something being a feminist you know I'm kind of like oh god do they sometimes they do yes I see the argument for Cardi B is stronger than Kylie I I definitely agree yeah Cardi B to me has is a much stronger argument but I just when I when I read your comp your um book about a faux powerment I was like I'm gonna assign this to them like this is exactly what I'm talking about so Yeah. And I feel like sometimes when we make it about that individual feeling of power, we do it in a way that erases the fact that you still don't have that sociopolitical power. And we substitute the one for the other. Yes, it's completely neoliberal. Where it's like it's, it's the individual and it's not we're not thinking about power as being instructional and institutional. Yeah. But I also do at the same time, and I don't really address this on Unscrewed. Now I'm feeling like I should have. I do think it's also true that it's easier to want more power or feel like you deserve power if you have like real sociopolitical power, if you have experienced a feeling of power mm-hmm. that it creates, it can create an appetite. And yes. I, I'd be very curious to think more about in what circumstances is it a panacea and a distraction and a neoliberal sort of faux powerment scam and in in what circumstances make it more likely that it's going to actually genuinely be empowering Mm -hmm. or bring about foster some type of change but I really love that idea of this like appetite for power like that's kind of of sexy excellent all right I I have one more somewhat I mean it's not random it's in your book but uh it's going to feel a little bit off topic uh but we had a last uh my last season one of my favorite episodes that we did last fall was with Catherine Cross uh, talking about sex robots. Sex um, robots? Yes. And you write a little bit about technology and gender and race and sex in your book. Um, and so I just wanted to ask you, her take was basically, and I, and I became really convinced by this, that the sex robots are us, right? That the sex That sex robots in the cultural imagination tend to be gendered and raced as the other right and so the robot uprising is actually our uprising but that the problem is that in the real world the people who are making the tech are building it with a ton of bias involved so it's the tech isn't the problem it's the people making the fucking tech so i'm just curious if you want to talk about a little bit about sex robots and and sex tech 
Yeah, so I write about fucking machines in the book, and I think yes. that's probably my favorite chapter, just because I also oh, love the so... construction of fucking machines. Yeah, they're so <laughs> they're so interesting, right? And just the word to me is so like I never get sick of saying fucking machines uh, for whatever reasons. And there's so many different types. I focus on Cake.com, which is a very large BDSM internet pornography company. So they started the fucking machines, I think, in 2000. I'm sorry, in 2000. I'm interested in the kind of what I call like the entanglement of different technologies. So obviously the machines are first and foremost like technologies of pleasure, right? They're built to give people pleasure. But I'm interested in how that idea of the technologies of pleasure is imbricated with what I call like technologies of race and gender and sexuality. So how are they racialized in various ways? And you were just talking about that with, I think you said Catherine Cross's work on sex robots. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so for me, what was so interesting about them was the conditions in which they were made. Because on the one hand, right, they promise this kind of like radical sex in which we no longer need a body or like the machines are like sort of framed as better than human and there's a sort of like techno supremacy going on because they can fuck for hours. They don't need batteries. Right. They, they don't have a refractory tired. period. Yeah. Exactly. You don't get in arguments with them. They don't, you know, sleep on your couch afterwards. They don't make messes. You know, they don't do drugs or drink or like whatever. But on the other hand, they're so anchored in this kind of like heteronormative uh, framework. So actually there was a, one of the sex toy manufacturers that I write about in the book when he first made one of his toys, and I'm forgetting the name of exactly which one it was, would only sell them to married couples. Um, and so they kind of sort of like initiated in this um, discourse of heterosexual monogamy. Um, so like, I'm really interested in how this BDSM kinky porn site is using them, right? Because it's very different than that. But also the ways in which they racialize Black women's bodies and how like I was trying to look for sort of differences or what I might discern as differences between how black women were made to perform with the machines versus other women. Yeah. And what did you find? I found interesting things like sometimes there weren't such explicit differences as I would expect. But where a lot of the difference came was in not necessarily the performances, although sometimes the performances were very different. Like there's one that I write about in the book in which there's a black woman like on a gynecological table and I write the ways in which it really evokes like all of this sort of like history of black women's sexual abuse and exploitation at the hands of the father of gynecology, Marion Sims. But there's all this really interesting stuff happening in the comments. And this is something I'm sort of working on now a little bit is like having us extend our reading of pornography beyond sort of like what's on the screen um, and how much viewers comments become another dynamic of pornographic performance and racialization. And so there would be all these comments that would kind of like insert race back into the scene. Mm, fascinating. Well, I could talk to you about this forever, but we're kind of out of time. <laughs> um, I'm so glad that you came on the show. Ariane Cruz, where can people find you, follow your work, all of that good stuff? Unfortunately, I'm kind of a social media ghost. Um, <laughs> you can find my book on Amazon or on the press at New York University. I mean, you can and you find should. me at Penn State and look me up online. Wow, you're really not on socials. I'm not. You know what? It's such a strange, everyone asks me, and it's because I just spend so much time in front of the screens that I don't want to spend any more time. And I, I'm, I'm thinking of being sort of convinced and gradually people are maybe going to pull me in that direction. But Oh, I I'm like not trying to convince you. I'm like kind of in awe. <laughs> like. I just feel like I, I spend too much time already living vicariously and I want to like not do that anymore with social media. I admire your discipline. 
And you can find me on Twitter at Jacqueline F, on Instagram at Jacqueline Fable. You can find all my work and back episodes of the show at JacquelineFriedman.com. That's J-A-C-L-Y-N-F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N.com. Unscrewed is available wherever you like to get your podcasts, on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and Acast and Stitcher. Wherever you listen, please make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss an episode and give us, you know what I'm going to say, like a little review, five stars, take five minutes out of your day, make me super happy and help other people find the show. Unscrewed is produced by yours truly, Jacqueline Friedman, and edited by the amazing Natalia Rodriguez. Our in and out music is by The Pink Tiles, and our cover art is by Nicole Dodonna and was developed in collaboration with The Establishment, who also developed the sound cues. Until next week, I'm wishing you safe and happy sex lives. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.